Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be back with you on this wonderful day. Uh, we have been talking about some stories about Jesus over the last couple months. Since it's a Bible thing, of course, we're talking about Jesus. Well, yeah, of course, we're always talking about Jesus, but we're talking about specifically some of the stories from his ministry in the Gospels. Uh, last week, we did take a brief break from that, and we talked about uh, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, and talked about the role of faith, the importance of faith, that faith is the, uh, if you will, to put it kind of crudely, I guess, the currency of the kingdom of God. We're not uh, ultimately called to prove ourselves through good works or anything like that. The thing that God values in his people is faith, and that faith deepens our relationship with God, and as our relationship with God deepens and we move out in good works, not to prove ourselves, but instead living out of gratitude, living out of the way that we have come to believe is the right way. So that's kind of uh, generally what we talked about last week. We covered several uh, different uh, heroes of our of our of Christianity. I'm not to get it too confused, but and how they were all uh, honored in this way because of the faith they had, not again because they were incredible people, but instead they had faith and God was incredible, right? So we are returning, though, to the stories on Jesus' ministry. We've covered several already, as I mentioned, and this week we are going to be covering one you may have heard before, and you may, if nothing else, have heard references to it before, a story in which Jesus calms a storm. So one of uh, a, a really fun story about Jesus' uh, authority and power in the world and also uh, the love and care he has for his disciples. So we're going to see a couple of things in this story today. Uh, one, we're going to see our tendency to panic, right? We've got to look at what we're doing in these stories, too, and relate. We're going to see Jesus' miraculous power over nature and Jesus' miraculous power and knowledge over all the situations of life, okay? This doesn't just mean that Jesus is really good when it comes to when it's rainy outside, but instead this is a small example of a greater truth that Jesus is in control of all of life's circumstances, even when they seem totally out of control like we're going to see in this story. So uh, this story also, just so you know, is in all three of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. John is not included in the synoptic gospels. Uh, we don't have time to describe what that is. We, we did a, a couple months back. I don't, I don't even remember which one, so I can't even point you to the right one. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are referred to as the synoptic gospels, largely cover more of the same material. John has more unique material. That's the really, really easy version of what the difference is. Uh, but we're going to tackle the version in Mark 4 today. Now, Mark is unique as one of the gospels. They're all unique. But the one thing that makes Mark unique is it's the most concise, and things tend to move really quickly in the book of Mark. It is uh, the shortest of the four. This one, actually, there's some more detail in Mark. So uh, a little bit uh, abnormal for the book of Mark for it to have a story with a little more detail. Uh, but this is the one, so that's why we're going to go with that one. It also has one of my favorite lines in all of the Bible. We'll talk about that. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today. And we've got a relatively short amount of verses here in verses 35 through 41. We'll start by reading 35 and 36. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So Jesus is the one who said, let us go across the other side, since we didn't actually see his name there. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, they're heading across the other side of the lake slash sea of Galilee. Uh, calling it a sea is maybe a little dramatic, but that's kind of its official title. It's really more like a large lake. 
Uh, it appears likely that the reason for this uh, going across to the other side is not just because they wanted to give the boat a whirl, but instead it was to break, get a break from the crowd. Okay. Um, we kind of see that at the beginning of verse 36. It says, and leaving the crowd. That's kind of just an insinuation there. But uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we've seen quite a bit. He and the disciples are regularly kind of getting overwhelmed by these crowds. A um, couple weeks ago, we talked about when um, Jesus had the Peter uh, set down their nets and they caught so much fish that they couldn't even fill two boats or that two boats got overflowed with fish. Um, but he was setting off into the water so that he could talk to the crowd and get like a little space, a little personal space there. Um, so they're regularly kind of getting overwhelmed by the crowds. A, they don't want to get trampled. B, Jesus, remember, he is fully God, fully human in his ministry on earth. He does need rest. Um, so all of those possibly reasons why they were going, but they were going across to the other side. Uh, and then there's this little note that there are other boats with them. Who's in them? I don't know. Um, maybe not all of the disciples were in one boat. It's entirely possible. We'll talk a little bit about, more about that in a second. It's, again, tough to say for sure. We get no more info on the other boats, um, unless, of course, they are uh, filled with the disciples. Uh, maybe just other people who witnessed the event. We don't know. Either way, there's other boats out there, and they're also going to be having a tough time here as we move into verses 37 and 38. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? All right, so huge storm comes up. Uh, historically, this the Sea of Galilee is prone to um, these kind of storms, from what I uh, have read in the commentary. And then I remember hearing a, a sermon on this one time, too, and they also mentioned that, uh, just because of the nature of the geography around it. Um, these big storms can come up kind of suddenly. And uh, water starts to fill the boat. Now, I do feel the need to tell you, I have been to Israel, modern-day Israel. I went about 10 years ago. I have been to the Sea of Galilee, and I have seen a boat that they excavated from around Jesus' time, you know, within a century or two. They call it the Jesus boat. So tourists will come see it, right? Very unlikely that was actually Jesus, Peter, John, and James' boat, right? Uh, but I will tell you this. This thing has low sides, okay? It is not very high off the water. It is not that big. It's not that wide. It's not that long, okay? Which is why I wondered if maybe some of the disciples are in another boat because you take 12 disciples, uh, assuming all 12 of them are there. Uh, and then Jesus, so that makes a good 13. Uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of fellows to put in this boat, which again is not really that big. Um, so a big storm would really be affecting this relatively small boat made of wood, made 2,000 years ago, right? Okay. Just imagine now, yeah, being kind of this kind of, we might call it like a dinghy, you know? It's kind of like that's much, it's bigger than that. But um, it's not it's not the stable boat you would want if you were out in a storm. Um, as you can imagine, they are kind of freaking out. But Jesus is just chilling in the back on the floor of the boat and sleeping. So just think about this logically. He is on the floor of the boat. Um, when I was a kid, I always imagined there was like a sleeping quarters below deck that Jesus was in. Um, that's not, not, not the case. There are no sleeping quarters on uh, this little tiny Jesus boat, right? Um, so a couple things. It's raining really hard, so he's getting wet. I don't know if any of you have ever been asleep in the rain. To me, that seems almost impossible. And there's water that's probably pooling underneath where he's sleeping. So it's 
this is a, an incredible serenity we are seeing from Jesus in this instance. And again, there's no sleeping quarters. Uh, just as long as we're talking about boats, I also have had the opportunity to uh, tour a U.S. Navy destroyer before. Um, and they have sleeping quarters. Uh, it is not just the floor of the boat. Now, um, fun fact, though, their bunk beds are like triple bunk beds, but the ceilings are not like, I think they're shorter than a normal like uh, building ceiling. And they're, they're so thin that you can't even like sleep on your side or else you get squashed by the bunk ahead of you. That's just something I thought was interesting. I, it would be hard to sleep on a destroyer, I think. Anyway, enough about different types of boats. There is no sleeping quarter. Uh, in the Jesus boat, I guess we're still talking about kinds of boats. In the Jesus boat, there is no sleeping quarters. He's just kind of on the on, in the back of the boat, kind of on the floor. Uh, he's got a cushion, it says, um, but that's uh, that's about it. Uh, so they wake Jesus up, and this is this is the line I really love from this story uh, because this is me to God all the time. Do you not care that we are perishing? So they go in and they kind of go in guns ablazing, right? This clear statement of doubt and fear and maybe a little anger um, coming from the disciples. Uh, do you not, not even do you not see, do you not care that we're about to die is basically it. Um, and I don't know about you, but sometimes in my interactions with the Lord, I'm like, are you seeing what's going on down here? You, you see what, you see what we're going through? Okay. just want to make sure. Right, that that kind of attitude, unfortunately, of of doubt, of fear, maybe some anger, of feeling like something bad's happening, and I want it to stop. Right, so that's what they come to Jesus with. Sometimes that's how we approach God too. Right, but Jesus is not so easily frightened. Verses thirty nine through forty one, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace, be still," and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus wakes up and he commands the wind and the waves to be still. And everything gets calm, a great calm. That's what they experience. A great calm from this incredible storm. Now there is a equal, an equally incredible calm. And Jesus asked them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And depending on your experience of Christianity, church, spirituality, the nature of this question can take many forms. Okay? Now, some of you are going to read this or hear this as angry. Jesus is angry at them. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Or maybe as disappointed. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Or critical. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you considered that Jesus asked this question in kindness? Have you considered that he asked this question in gentleness, that this question was an invitation? If you've heard the story before and you've read this question before, we run that through the grid of our experience, right? We tend, as much as we don't try, we cannot help ourselves. 
when we read something that God is saying to us in Scripture, we tend to run it through our experiences of life, of authorities, uh, mostly mostly thinking about authorities. How was how was I ascribed value by an authority? How was I ascribed? How was I devalued by an authority? And then when I read the authoritative word of God, a lot of times we're reading it through that lens. We're reading it. When I read this, I'll be honest with you, when I read this question, I see disappointed God looking his eye. It's like, if I could make the face, I'll try to describe it. Kind of looking down out of the side of your eye, eyebrows raised, kind of like this expression, like, really? It's like kind of a disappointed kind of attitude. That's kind of how I read this as I imagine Jesus saying it to me. But I think it is important that we recognize that Jesus is actually not the person that we has affected that lens through which we view scripture. He's not actually that person. He's not the teacher, the parent, the church leader, the coach. Not, he's not those people, those people that have taught us, unfortunately, what happens when we don't do the right thing. And they experience, you know, they show us anger, disappointment, criticism, something else like that. And this is so hard for me to comprehend that Jesus would have been asking this in a kind, gentle, inviting way. I'd be feeling like I messed up big time. That's how I would feel about myself in this moment. Like, I can't believe I just like was freaking out and Jesus was just totally in control the whole time. So I'd also assume God must be taking the same tactic with me. But he must also feel like, yeah, look, what were you thinking? Right. So sometimes even we ourselves, our own inner critic can become like this lens through which we view God. But that's not actually who he is. That's the voice that we ascribe to him. What would you think about this idea that Jesus is asking this question in kindness and in invitation? In gentleness, in understanding, in graciousness. It's hard for me to. Again, even as I say this, it's hard for me to even think like, man, could that, could that be? And I don't think God is this person who I make him out to be sometimes in my mind and my heart, right? That I don't think God is angry at me or disappointed or critical, but wow, it can be hard not to feel that way sometimes, right? And maybe you experience that as well. But when we read scripture, we have to try our absolute best to take God for who he is, not who we are think him to be. So yeah, what would it what would it look like for us to think that he's asking this question and kind of it's hard to reconcile. But remember, here's the thing too. The disciples are still figuring out who Jesus is, frankly. We're in we're early in Jesus ministry. They're not even going to get it like till well after Jesus has ascended. Really. The disciples are still figuring out who Jesus is. So they all probably, maybe Judas doesn't, right, believe he's the Messiah, but they don't really know what that means. They know that he's this promised, uh, this promised king, this promised possibly political figure. They don't fully know what Jesus is here to do or who he is. So they're still learning. These are like data points for them to learn. Like, wait, no, he's not just a man. This is something far greater. Jesus is someone far greater. Uh, I also love uh, one, another one of my favorite biblical phrases, uh, verse 41, they were filled with great fear, is literally they feared a great fear, which is really fun for me to 
think. Uh, it's not great English, but it's uh, very uh, descriptive of how they were feeling. And it's at the action of Jesus. They see what he did, and it caused them to have like an awe kind of fear, like, who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him is the question they ask. They're still figuring this out, and now they've gotten a new data point. They really don't know what to do with it. They say, okay, so this guy can command the wind and the sea. All right, that's new. We're not used to that. So they're struck by this fact, right? And this is something that they're going to use to, again, further their understanding of who Jesus is, and it's the same for us today. So as we then seek to uh, apply this passage to our lives today, I think there are some really easy parallels, and we've kind of already gotten into some of it with uh, even just thinking about God's voice in Scripture and how we hear it or how we read it. Um, but what we really learn from this story is, number one, that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. We are the disciples. We get really panicky. Do you not care that we are perishing, right? It can feel that way for me and maybe for you when things are are going wrong. They seem uh, totally out of, out of whack. Um, things are uh, hurtful. Things are stressful. Uh, can't sleep. Can't go without just these ruminating thoughts. And we just think, God, are you, are you here? Are you seeing what's going on? Well, a story like this reminds us that even in those times when we are panicking and we don't know what to do and we don't see the end, that Jesus is still in control. He's still in control, and he's still ready to act. He's still there. He's still in control. I mentioned actually a couple of weeks ago, I obviously got ahead of myself, and I shouldn't have, but this, uh, this lyric from a song by Bethel, it's called It Is Well. It says, let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and winds still know his name. This idea that we encourage ourselves to trust in God and to remember a story like this. Whatever the waves and wind are of our lives, he, they still know his name. He is still in control, is the idea. Imagine the situation that maybe comes to mind in your life. Imagine it as a really powerful wind, gusting wind, blowing things over as waves that are, are destructive or too big. Imagine whatever that is. And reminding yourself that that wave, those waves, that wind still know his name. And so when he speaks and when he commands, they still listen. That's not just a nautical thing that Jesus has, right? He has still control over all our life circumstances. And doesn't mean we are always delivered immediately from the fear, the anxiety, the stress, the pain of what we go through. But it's just this idea of remembering that he does see that we are perishing. He does see how we struggle. He does recognize it. That's another thing we have to apply, recognizing that Jesus sees what's happening and he cares. Not that he's sitting there with his arms crossed, shaking his head, disappointed. He sees what's happening, recognizes that it is difficult, and he cares. He sees that we live in a world that is broken by sin, and he cares and even empathizes with that. Because remember, he experienced life as we've experienced it. He sees what's happening. He sees the end. He recognizes what he's going to do 
in us and through us in those situations, but it doesn't mean he's happy that we are suffering. He sees that we are perishing. He cares that we are perishing. But we are fortunate to know that he has the bigger picture. That even as he sees it, and whereas we would choose to stop it, nope, stop, stop, stop. We don't want any more of this, right? Because that's what happens when we get to difficult things. We say, stop it right here. How can this be over? Jesus sees a bigger picture in which our faith is deepened. And that's kind of, this is the last thing I want to touch on. And again, going back to verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He's calling us to deeper faith in him. He says, are you you not still trusting who I am? I want you to trust who I am. I see that you're still afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. That's what he's calling us to. When we are in the middle of storms that can come on suddenly, and they can last a long time, right? Jesus is calling us to deeper faith in him in the midst of that, knowing that he is in control, knowing that regardless of the nature of what we're going through, that he can use it to deepen our faith. And remember, I mentioned at the beginning, we talked about the Hall of Faith last week. What God ultimately calls his people to is faith in him, to believe in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, certainty of things not seen. That is what God calls us to, is to have faith to believe him. Way back in Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. One of the most important and sometimes overlooked verses in all of scripture, because that is the nature of the kingdom of God. Not that really awesome people make it into the kingdom of God, but people who display an awesome amount of faith in a God who is awesome are the ones that would be called great, right? Those would be the ones who'd be in the hall of faith, right? It's play on hall of fame. That these would be the people that we would look to, not the people that were the tallest or the fastest or the strongest or what have you, but the people who had the most faith in the most trying circumstances. So what Jesus calls us to here, what scripture calls us to here, is a deeper faith in the midst of life's wind and waves and storms. And as the water starts to pool at the bottom of the boat and the boat starts to rock and we wonder if it'll capsize, to trust that even when it feels like it's all crumbling around, that God is in control, that he has not forgotten, that he does see, that he does care, and that he's calling us to trust him. So whatever that situation is in your life, and I know from this side of the microphone, it's easy for me to say, yeah, we just have to have more faith. I hope that the truth of scripture, the truth of who God is, the truth of the ministry of the spirit, the goodness of the father, that all of these things more and more over and over again, as we talk about same thing after same thing, that ultimately they start to change our perspective, that it does become something that is almost like second nature to us, that when hard times come up, that we would be willing, that we'd be able by the grace of God to continue to trust in him more and more so that we just have a different grid to run things through, that we cast off the grids of the world that say, you need to be in control, you need to take what is yours, right? If you don't do something right, I'm disappointed, I'm angry, I'm critical, that we can throw off the lens that we view the world through that has been given to us by the world, 
And that instead we can start to bit by bit establish in our hearts, in our minds, a biblical framework that we put the suffering, the context of our suffering into. And more and more, we will start to recognize how in control, how great, how wonderful, how kind God is to us, whether in the good times or the bad times. And that's my hope for us today. Because when we continue to display that faith, when we continue to trust in who God is, he doesn't falter. And for others to be able to see our faith, that then not only can strengthen the faith of others, but can also lead them to know who this God is that we would put our faith in. It brings him glory. He's the only one worthy of glory. Even if we could control every single one of our circumstances, if we did that and it distracted from people knowing who God was, then it would be a net loss. Because suffering and struggle is an opportunity for us to place our faith in God and for him to receive the glory. Because that's who we want people to know. We don't want to ultimately be known for people who are really good at managing crises, right? We want to be known as people of faith. And we want that faith to point to a glorious God who is the one who's worth knowing. Thank you.